is John chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to end up. So maybe put a bookmark in there and then turn over to John chapter number 4. John chapter number 4. I wonder if, if I was to ask you today, what would be the primary activity, the primary application of a, of a Christian? What that ought to be, what would your answer be? What, what is a Christian's primary job on this earth? What is it? What would, that, what would that be? Is it to preach the gospel? Is it to serve Christ in some capacity, whether every day in your workplace or on a mission field or something like that, full-time Christian service as we call it? Is it to do, to do good works, to try to obey the, the Bible as, as, uh, and the teachings of Jesus Christ uh, as best as we know how? Of course, after salvation, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. But the Bible says that even Jesus Christ went about doing good, right? So is, is that the purpose? Is that what our job is here on this earth? What's the primary occupation and activity of a Christian? Well, I think if we had to narrow it down to one specific activity, the Holy Spirit would guide us to the book of John, chapter number 4, and verse number 23, and says this, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. The Father, the Holy Spirit tells us, seeks worshipers. Surely, as we scour the entire Bible, we have to find that worship is the primary activity and occupation of, of a Christian. In fact, it's going to be our primary occupation, I believe, in heaven. Think about, we're probably not going to have prayer in heaven. We're, we're, you know, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would we need prayer? We're not going to have, we're not, we're not going to read the Bible in heaven. We're not going to have the opportunity to study the scriptures like we do now because we are going to be with the word of God incarnate in heaven. But there's not going to be a need to preach the gospel because everybody that's in heaven has already accepted Jesus Christ as their savior and is already saved and is already there because they've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. There's not going to be a need for missions because who are you going to tell about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Everybody there is already saved. A lot of things that we would have to say that the church of Jesus Christ does on this earth right now are going to be things that by the very nature are going to cease to exist when we get to heaven. But there's going to be one thing that will still remain in heaven, and that's worship. Amen. Think of it this way. Down here now, we're in an apprenticeship school, learning how and practicing what it's going to be like to eventually worship around the throne. Eventually, if you think of it this way, to graduate around the throne of God and to say with a loud voice like it says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And what a day that's going to be when we're able to gather around the throne. You know, I think we have such a small view of what heaven's going to really be like. We, we get this mindset in, you know, in, in our minds. We get this idea in our minds that I'm not really looking forward to heaven. How great is it going to be to stand around the throne and sing praises to God all day, every day? I, I like this life a whole lot better than that. But if we could really get a picture of the majesty of God and what that's really going to be like to be able to gather around the throne and bend our knee before God and say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Boy, if we could really see what that's going to be like, I think that would completely change our picture of what heaven is going to be like. And we would want nothing to do with this earth. We have such a small view of God. We have such a small view of heaven. 
But one of these days, that's what our primary occupation in heaven is going to be, is to worship. So worship, then, is not part of the Christian life. Worship is the Christian life. So how do we fare? How do we measure up with regards to worship? What condition is our worship in? I think maybe a better question to ask this morning is, what is worship? Is worship singing hymns? Is singing choruses for an hour before we get a five or ten minute message from the Word of God? Is that worship? Is worship coming together and, 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 and gathering together in a, in, with other families to listen to the preaching of the Word of God? Is, is, is worship meeting around the Lord's table and remembering Him by doing communion? We're going to do that tonight. Is that worship? Well, I would say that none of those things are actually worship. True, they can be done worshipfully, but they can also be done without worship. You can do every single one of those things without actually worshiping God. Therefore, they're not the definition of worship, but things that you do perhaps when you are worshiping. Perhaps the true reason worship is scarce in our church today is because we've mistaken it for the experiences of worship. People think that worship is to sing. Let's worship together, and then they sing for a few minutes. Is that worship? The preaching of the word of God, that's not worship. Meeting around the Lord's table intrinsically of itself does not equate with worship. Could it be said that we have substituted rituals, outward rituals for what God says is an inward reality and an expression called worship? We have to ask ourselves as we sing in church, as we pray, as we praise God through the choir and in so many other ways, how is our worship? We've lost our worship with all of the trappings of expressions of worship, I believe. And if we've lost worship, how do we find it again? How do we recognize when we really are truly worshiping God? How do we know that that's what we're doing? We say, let's gather around and worship. But what does that really mean? All of those things that we just mentioned are things that would give expressions to worship. But what really is worship? I think, in fact, the Oxford English Dictionary defines worship, and it falls very short of what the true definition is. It defines worship as this. Worship is homage or reverence paid to a deity, especially in a formal service, to attend public worship. Webster's 1828 Dictionary, I think, is a little closer in its definition. It says that worship is, quote, to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. But worship is much, much more than just a formal service. It's more than to, a, to attend public worship. And I think this, this bad definition that's found in the Oxford English Dictionary is because dictionaries tend to change in their connotation when words change. When the definitions of words change, the dictionary has to change too. For example, in our King James Bible, the word conversation is used often. And if you look at the definition of conversation in our day and age, in the 21st century, that word conversation only means a verbal expression. It only means a verbal communication. That's what, uh, that's what uh, a conversation is. But if you look up in the dictionary, it's clearly going to say that it's, that it's only a verbal expression. But our word conversation in the King James Version of the Bible is not just talking about the things that we say. It's talking about our lifestyle. It's talking about how we live. It's talking about how we act in addition to what we say. But over time, that word conversation has changed. 
to being only verbal. So the dictionary has changed to say that the word conversation is only a verbal expression. And I would, I would say to you today that the definition of the word worship has changed. And because of that, the Oxford English Dictionary has changed the way that the word worship is perceived. It's hard to find worship because worship has changed. A.W. Tozer wrote a very well-known book called Whatever Happened to Worship? And he says this in that book. I say that the greatest tragedy in the world today is that God has made man in his image and made him to worship him, made him to play the harp of worship before the face of God day and night, but he has failed God and dropped his harp. It lies voiceless at man's feet. Worship is hard to define because it's a spiritual thing. You can't draw worship. You can't describe worship with words, so to speak. It cannot be analyzed by the human eye. It cannot be analyzed by the human mind. And so it's hard to describe. And, 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 and therefore, the antithesis of that is this. Counterfeits are very easily taken for the real thing. Right. And all across the country today, churches are gathering to worship. But how much worship is actually taking place in those churches today? If I was to try to define what worship really is, I would say that it's the adoration of God from our spirit. And that's, it's hard to put that into words, but it's the adoration of God from our spirit. Let me explain that. The body is sense conscious. We have senses, right? That's what we communicate with the outward world with. We touch things. We feel things. We smell. We see. We hear. Those are our senses, and that's how we communicate with the outside world. That's our body. But, of course, we're made up of body, soul, and spirit. The soul is your personality, if you will. It's the seat of your affections. It's made up of your, of your mind, your emotions, and your will. That is your soul. That's, what, that's where you are self-conscious. That's how you know who you are and what you are, right? That's the you that, that talks to yourself when nobody else hears those conversations that are going on in your head. That's your soul. But your spirit is God-conscious, the spirit is the part of us that communicates with God. That's the part that was created to communicate with him in his likeness. Because God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, right? So our spirit is the God-conscious part of who we are. That's how we communicate with God. That's the part of you that's dead, that's cut off from God, that's, that's severed from God by sin if you are outside of Christ. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you don't have that God consciousness. You don't, your spirit is dead until it's made quickened, until it's made alive by Jesus Christ. In fact, he says that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So your spirit and the Holy Spirit for somebody who is not saved does one thing in their life, and that is to convict them of sin, to convict them of their need for Jesus Christ. And once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're made alive, that God consciousness, if you will, is awakened because now you are alive in Jesus Christ. Your spirit communicates with his spirit. His spirit communicates with your spirit. And you have that connection as a father to a son. He becomes our father. We become his sons. We've been adopted. We are his now. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So those who are not saved are, are trying to live this life and trying to have this, this, this God connection, if you will, and they can't because they're dead. You cannot have life if you're dead. God's promised us life if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But it's, it, worship then is to adore God from your spirit, the part that relates to God. 
Brilliant definition, I think, is given to us by Thomas Carlyle. Carlyle. He's an old Puritan, lived in the 1600s, and he said this. Worship is transcendent wonder. Worship is transcendent wonder, being caught up. Transcendent means above us or beyond us. Caught up in wonder of something that's beyond our capacity to understand and to grasp. To be taken up with the glory of God. That's what transcendent means. And so worship, that which we do from redeemed hearts and from quickened spirits, is the highest occupation and function of activity known to man. Worshiping God in our spirits. That's what true worship really is. The best, the most divine, the holiest thing that we can do is worship God to be overwhelmed by God, to be overwhelmed by the thought of God, to be overwhelmed by the greatness of God, to be overwhelmed by the attributes of God. To be saturated in God is to worship God. But yet the words and definitions fail. And for that reason, God gives us a lot of pictures in Scripture of what true worship is. And one of the best, I feel, is found in Matthew chapter 2 in this nativity story that we won't take time to read all the way through, but these wise men from the East... It says in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately or secretly called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. There are three things that I want to leave with you today that teach us lessons, if you will, from the wise men on how to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and we'll look at those things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Again, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. I pray that you'd help make this clear to us. I know sometimes we have such a skewed definition of what worship really is. God, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, it would become clear, and that we would truly worship you in the way that you want to be worshiped. And God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts through the message this morning. We'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want you to see is this, the distance of worship, the distance of worship. What I mean by the distance of worship is there's a long journey from knowledge to worship, a long journey. Some would say it's a very short journey, perhaps only 18 inches from your head to your heart, but that's, a, that's, that's what we're talking about. It's not just, worship is not just knowing Jesus Christ, knowing about Jesus Christ, even knowing him as your own personal savior. That's not worship, but really You'll know if you're saved that it's sometimes very difficult to get along that long journey from the mind to the heart. We have to say right away that worship is not knowledge. Worship cannot be knowledge. 
I'm sure that knowledge helps worship. I'm very sure that it aids in our worship because the more we know and the more we find out about God in our hearts, the more we're going to be filled with that adoration and that revelation of, of, of himself to us. But there's a long journey from knowledge to worship. There's a big difference. Now, we know from Matthew chapter 2 that these wise men traveled from the east, but we know very little about them. We don't even know that there were three wise men. The stories and, and, the, and the manger scene and everything, is, you know, you always see three wise men because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So everybody just automatically assumes that there were three. Many assume that there were as many as 12 wise men that came. Uh, many of the scholars assume that there's at least that many. And they came from the east, but we know this much. They must have known about the promise of the Savior from heaven. Uh, they must have known that the king of the Jews was expected. If you look at verse 2, the first part, they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. There was not a big thing in the sky that said king of the Jews. There was not, I mean, it wasn't this big, you know, bright light in the sky that was a marquee that lit up. It was just a star. But they knew what that star represented, and they knew that that was a star that they were looking for. And so they said, that star is going to guide us to where this king is. They had some type of knowledge, biblical knowledge, perhaps, of the Old Testament, of a promise of the one who was going to come. But the second part of that verse says this, we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They were astronomers. They had astronomical knowledge. They were, they were more than likely uh, astronomers by trade, and they knew the constellations in the sky for that time of the year, that there was a promised king coming. They knew when they saw his star in the east that this spoke of the great deliverer. This spoke of the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And they recognized that particular star from the east. And they gathered themselves together. They put whatever they needed together, and they followed that star. But you see, it wasn't enough. The knowledge wasn't enough. The biblical understanding of what that star was wasn't enough. The, astro the astronomical knowledge couldn't satisfy them. It wasn't enough for them to just know about it or to know about him. I'm sure, I'm very sure that when they saw that star, they were thrilled, they were excited, and, and their minds started to rationally work out what they were actually going to see when they got there, and that they, they knew that this was a fulfillment of the biblical prophecy of somebody, the king of the Jews, that was going to come. But that wasn't enough. These wise men wanted, they needed to go further. They had to come to where he was, and they had to see him. They couldn't stay out of his presence any longer. We're, we are blessed today in the church with an abundance of biblical knowledge. We know more about the Bible today than probably any previous generation. Books and books and books are still being written about the Bible. Commentaries, new commentaries are coming out every year that, that uh, honestly are not bad commentaries at all. They give us a greater understanding of the Word of God. So, Biblical knowledge is not our problem, but there's, where is worship to be found in the truest sense? That knowledge is vital. I don't want to downplay knowledge. I'm not saying that you should be dumb about these things or not know anything about the word of God, but it's not worship, and your, your, your vast knowledge of the scriptures brings no joy to the heart of God, no joy. The Bible says in 3 John, verse number 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Knowing the truth is good, but what will bring true joy to the heart of the mighty God is when his own children, knowing the truth, walk in the truth. And the truth of God is this, God seeks worshipers. God seeks worshipers. That knowledge can be exciting, and I know all about that when I study uh, 
day by day as I'm you know, preparing for messages and things like that, and you come across things in the Word of God, you come across things that are written about the Word of God, and it's exciting. There's many, many exciting passages in the Bible, and you know about that too. And it can even lead you in an, in an intellectual way to an appreciation about God and, to, and to, to, to just grasp who He really is. But worship has to go the distance to be with Christ, to fall at Christ's feet, to adore him in person. And that's exactly what happened with these, shep- with these wise men. Their knowledge led them to our Savior. And sometimes I feel like our knowledge has the potential to keep us from being led to the Savior. We get so wrapped up in, in theological knowledge. And here's a question for us today. Do we stop at knowledge or do we go on to the house and worship the king? Because that's what the wise men did, the distance of worship. There's a long journey from knowledge to worship. But I want you to see this secondly, and that is the cost of worship. Worship must be precious. In fact, worship is is very costly. If you look at verse 11, you read there, when they were coming to the house. You know what's the difference between them and the shepherds? You know, the the story, the Christmas story that we typically picture is, is shepherds there and wise men there together. The shepherds were the ones that came to the stable in Bethlehem where Jesus was. The wise men did not go to that stable. Now, we have that picture, you know, Jesus Christ laying in a manger and three wise men sitting around there presenting their gifts to them. That's not the biblical account. That's not what the Bible says. You notice the difference between the, the shepherds and, the, uh, and these wise men. And it was probably about two years that had expired between the time when Jesus was born in that stable and when those wise men came to, what does the Bible say? the house where he was, right? The child is probably, Jesus Christ is probably a little toddler at that point. They're living in, a, in Joseph's house, not the nativity story where they see the wise men coming to the stable. They came to a house, but as they came, they fall at the Savior's feet. Verse 11 says this, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What I believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us in this passage is that the wise men presented something to Jesus Christ That was very costly. Gold and frankincense and myrrh, those were three of the most expensive things that you could buy in that day and age. Worship costs you. And I think it's a a common rule, and I think you'd all agree with me when I say that that which does not cost you anything is not worth anything. Right? If it costs you something, then that's when it has value. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's not worth anything. But this worship of the wise men, it cost them something. It was precious to them. David had the same attitude when he came to worship in 2 Samuel 24. He said, I will not offer unto my God of that which doth cost me nothing. The the threshing floor was being offered to him for free so that he could build an altar there. And David said, I don't want that for free. Let me pay you what it's worth. I'm not going to give God something that doesn't cost me anything. Picture this in your mind. These men are from the east. They weren't from down the road a few doors in Bethlehem. They were from a long way away. And, of course, they didn't have airplanes and cars and all of those kind of things. They didn't have the Autobahn where they could just jump on there and go as fast as they wanted and get over there. They had camels. That's how they traveled. And with a group of them, it probably took them quite a while to get to the place where Jesus was. But perhaps they kissed their children goodbye. They told their wives goodbye. I don't know when I'm going to be home exactly, but we're going east. We're going to follow this star. It's not just about leaving something but bringing something. That's what worship is about. The wise men came to the Lord, but they brought a gift, a precious gift, a costly gift. And that, in the truest sense, is worshiping and ministering unto the Lord. You think about what Mary did. 
Mary took that, that spike nerd, the Bible says, very, very costly. On average, it was about a 300 days wage that Mary spent on that ointment that she broke open and poured at Jesus' feet. And then she used her hair to wipe up that ointment. That was very costly. It cost her something to express her love and her adoration and her worship. Can I ask you this? Do you bring something for the Lord with you when you come to worship? And I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about how much did you put in the offering plate today. I'm not talking about that really at all. Do we think we're doing God a favor by coming to church on Sunday morning? I'm here, God. Isn't that what you wanted out of me? I'm here. I'm here to worship you. Isn't that enough? Are we coming twice on Sunday? Wow. You come Sunday morning and Sunday night, God must be really impressed with your worship of him. Singing the hymns, listening to the sermon. My friends, worship is so much more than that. The pastor said this, imagine if I asked you today as you entered in through the door, now what have you brought for the Lord today? What have you brought in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ that is precious to you, that is a thought that, has, that he's given to you that is precious and that will well up your heart in worship? You might protest and say, well, how can I give anything to the Lord? How can I possibly add in any way to the Almighty who is rich, the one who owns everything? He cannot be given anything he has not already. He cannot be added onto. He goes on to say this. Do you think the wise men, when they brought the gold and frankincense and myrrh, were bringing it to make the one who is infinitely rich even richer? Do you think that's why they were bringing it? Were they bringing the frankincense and the incense to make Christ an even sweeter savor to the nostrils? Of his heavenly father? He could not be. So why were they bringing these gifts? They were bringing gifts that were suitable for a king. So here's, here's the key of worship. Our worship and our praise to God doesn't add anything to God who is the recipient of that worship. But what it does is it shows forth the greatness of who he really is. That's our chief occupation, to worship God, to praise God for who he is. And what he is, that'll be precious to us and it will be precious to him. True worship will cost you. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. It'll cost you emotion. It'll cost you feeling. It'll cost you tears and sorrow. It may even cost you pain. In fact, it might even be called upon to cost your life. It'll cost you everything. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, though, says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We're not going above and beyond to offer God ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. What is a sacrifice? Something that is sacrificed on an altar is dead. They do not have a choice in what happens after their sacrifice. Isn't that correct? You look at the Old Testament, you see the lamb that was slain. You see the bulls that were slain. You see the, the sacrifices that were offered on that altar. Once they were offered, they couldn't say, actually, no, you know what? I'm not going to give my life. Once they were offered as a sacrifice, it was up to the priest to do whatever he needed to do with that sacrifice. Then that's exactly how God expects us to give ourselves to him. We are to be a living sacrifice. We're alive, right? We're still functioning. We're still, we're still alive in this world. So a living sacrifice means I'm alive, but I'm giving my life to you to be used however you want to use me. And that's not because I'm a great Christian. That's not because I'm going above and beyond in my service to God. That's not because I want to be recognized. It's because it's my reasonable service. That is what is expected of me as a Christian. 
So we talk about worship and we talk about doing all of these things that worship supposedly represents and we're not even offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. How can you be truly worshiping God when you go and live your life however you want to live your life throughout the week and then you come and you think everything's going to be fine because I'm here in church on Sunday and I'm giving God my time so he can forget everything that I did this past week because I'm here to worship him. That's not worship. And what we're doing in so many of our churches today is not worship. Worship is living as a complete sacrifice to Jesus Christ every single day of the week. Just because you come to church on Sunday does not mean that you're even a Christian, let alone a great Christian. Now, it's something that we ought to do. You ought to be in church on Sunday. But that does not define what a Christian is. A Christian, by the very nature of being a Christian, has offered himself to Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God. Why? Because it's my reasonable service. It's just what is expected out of me as a Christian. And if I'm not doing that, then not only am I not a great Christian, I'm not even a moderate Christian. And I'm certainly not worshiping God the way that I say that I'm worshiping God. It costs us everything, but it brings great joy to the heart of God the Father and to Jesus Christ. The distance of worship, the cost of worship, and then finally, I want you to notice the focus of worship. Notice who they worshiped. It says very plainly at the end of verse 11, and they fell down and worshiped him. When they saw, coming into the house, they saw the young child. Notice that. And then they saw Mary, his mother. But they fell down and worshiped him. Think about all the religions that put the focus on the wrong person in that story. Holy Mother Mary, right? No, the Bible talks about Mary being honored, being reverenced, being revered because of what she did. But they weren't coming there to honor Mary. They weren't coming there to reverence Mary. They were coming there to reverence the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who they were coming to worship. Mary can't do anything for us. She's not the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Only Jesus Christ can do something for us. Only he deserves our worship. They saw Mary, the the Bible calls her the blessed mother of Jesus Christ. She was the blessed Virgin Mary. But they didn't worship her. They fell down and they worshiped him. And what happens so often is we can be taken up in, in, we we can be so taken up in doctrines and methods and, and mechanisms and diagrams and all sorts of theological toys, programs of worship, projects, building the, the, the church physically bigger. The people within it, we can be taken up with evangelism, and we should be involved in in evangelism. We can be taken up with singing and choirs and all sorts of things, and those things are important in the church, but they came, and they fell, and they worshiped him. They weren't worshiping the church. They weren't worshiping the choir. They weren't worshiping the singers. They weren't worshiping Mary. They were worshiping him. Peripherals and incidentals were pushed out of the way where they ought to be, and they worship Jesus Christ. Mary's conception was miraculous. It was, it, it was unsurpassed. It was unique, but it was nothing compared to the one to whom she gave birth. And they worshiped him. Why did they worship him? Well, Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 14 says, Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. If this were a mere man, they would have been rebuked as John was when he fell down Before the angel in the book of Revelation, the angel said in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. 
worship God. That's what the angel told John. John saw the angel and the majesty, and he fell down to worship the angel, and the angel said, get up. We're on the same plane. God is the one that you ought to be worshiping, not me, not these other things. And I tell you, that's what's happening so much in our churches. That's why, that's why many of these, quote, non-denominational churches put so much of an emphasis on singing and, and music and drums and all of those kind of things, because that's what's being lifted up. And it's being called worship when in actuality what they're doing is standing up there and lifting themselves up instead of the name of Jesus Christ. And they call it worship, but it's not worship. He's the one that should be adored. He's the one that all the focus should be on. And I'm not saying that when you get up to sing, you ought to sound horrible. I'm not saying that you ought to try to sound bad so that the focus is not on you. There's nothing wrong with sounding good when we sing. There's nothing wrong with using our voices to help in that worship. But worship is true adoration in our spirit of who God really is. And all the rest of those things, the beautiful buildings and the, and the programs and the choirs and the singing and all that stuff is just to aid in our true worship of who God really is. And what happens so often is that we start to focus on that as the true worship, and that's not. God should be the focus of our true worship. You remember Paul and Barnabas when they went to Lystra and they did some miracles there. They healed some people and they started worshiping them as God. They said, oh, he's, he's Mercury, he's Venus or Jupiter, sorry. And, they, and, and Paul and Barnabas rent their clothes and they said this, we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Don't worship us, they said. We're nothing. We are here to point you to Jesus Christ. That's what you should be focusing on. Worship God, adore him. Are all of our services centered on him? Is all of my preaching centered on him? Or all, is my daily life lived for him? Is, the, is the, the crescendo of our song him and him alone? Because that's what it ought to be if we're truly going to focus on worshiping him. Does our life send out a sweet-smelling savor to God? What do you think God sees as he looks down on us today? As he sees into your heart. Does he see worship the way that he did in the hearts of the wise men? There ought to be more than knowledge. There ought to be more than pure, precious, costly things that we add into our worship. There ought to be just a simple, sweet-smelling savor that ascends to heaven as we focus our sight and our spirit Upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Christ alone. The pastor told a story of a man who was carried in a dream into a church. And in this vision, it's just a, just a story, obviously, but in this vision, he saw an organist vigorously playing on the organ. And he saw a pianist playing with all of her heart on the piano. She saw a choir. He, he saw a choir and the congregation singing. Some of them looked like they were even singing out. But I say look because he didn't hear any sound. He saw all of this, but there was no sound. And the minister got up there and started to energetically pray from the pulpit. But still, he didn't hear anything. And the man turned to this angel who was guiding him and had guided him into this church, and the angel said, you hear nothing, because there's nothing to hear. 
These people are not engaged in worship. Their heart's not touched. This silence is the silence that is yet unbroken in the presence of God. But listen now. Listen carefully. And that man strained his ears to listen. And in the middle of that church where there were so many things happening, so many people energetically singing, he heard the voice of a little child. He could hear that child slightly off key singing the song of worship. And while the pastor seemed to pray, people seemed to join and sing and pray. Only the child's voice could be heard because only the child's heart was touched. And that, said the angel that was guiding him, is the only true worship in all of this great church today. All of the others are concerned with their appearance. The child has a heart that was touched and is concerned with worship. How many worshipers in spirit and in truth will God find in our homes this Christmas time? Have we worshipped him today? Always say we're gathering for worship, right? Most churches have a sign that says worship, 11 o'clock. But are we really, truly worshipping him? I hope so. I hope we'll come tonight and worship him again in the rest of the year and the rest of our lives. But remember this. The Father seeketh such to worship him. We have to pray that God would make us worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And that when we come together, when we shut our door in the closet and have our prayer time, that we come like the wise men saying through the Holy Spirit, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. We've missed the point of worship in so many of our churches. And I'm afraid sometimes we miss the point of worship here. It's not about a program. It's not about how well we can put everything together. Uh, those things aid in worship. It's not about what the building looks like. It aids in worship. It's not how great the singers are. That aids in worship. It's not, not about the preaching. That aids in worship. It's not about having the Lord's Supper. That aids in worship. But that is not truly worship. Worship is transcendent wonder. When you get such a picture of God and who he really is, that you cannot help but be overwhelmed in his presence. That's when you've entered into true worship. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for how good you are to us. So often, God, and you know my heart, I feel so inadequate to try to really get these ideas across. And I pray that it's come across the way that you wanted it to be presented today. I pray that you'd help us to worship you in the way that you want to be worshipped. And God, I cannot help but think that in a crowd this size this morning, there has to be some that do not know you as their Savior. They've never accepted Jesus Christ as their payment for their sin. They don't know for sure that they're on their way to heaven. God, I pray that they'd get that settled today. It's an impossibility to worship you the way that you want to be worshipped without knowing you as our Savior. God, I believe that the majority in here this morning are saved. 
majority of us have been saved for quite a long time. wonder if we've ever truly worshipped you. I pray that you'd help each one of us to evaluate that this morning. pray that you'd help each one of us to look into our hearts, see where we stand before you. pray that you'd help us to get sin out. pray that you'd help us to be a living sacrifice, that we would be holy, that we would be acceptable unto God. Because that's our reasonable service. And God, I pray that when somebody comes down as a visitor in a vision to this church, that it wouldn't be one or two or three voices that are heard, but that the entire church would be a sound that's so wonderful to the ears of God, a smell that is so sweet to him because we are truly worshiping the way that you want us to worship. If we're not, I pray that you'd help us to get those things right with you today. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. It's a different type of message this morning. I know that. But I think there's so many things that we can learn from the story of the wise men and the way that they really worship God. And if you're not, then what's the point of being at church? Why even come? I'm not saying that you shouldn't be here. But why come if you're not really coming to worship God? Why come if you're just trying to show off? Well, I'm, I'm here. I put my time in. Everybody, nobody can say that I wasn't at church on Sunday. Why come? If you're not coming to truly worship him, then what is the point of doing what we do? Think about that this morning. As the piano plays, the invitation is open. If God's spoken to your heart, you can come. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you never even thought about it before, perhaps, if you don't know where you're going when you die, if you don't have your eternity settled, you know if you wait till eternity, it's too late. If you wait till eternity, it's too late. We have this life that God's given us right now to accept Him. If you need somebody to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're going to go to heaven, why don't you step out of your seat this morning? Let somebody take a Bible and share that with you. Most important decision you'll ever make. Let God speak to your heart.